You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Is there anything better than cracking open a cold beer and listening to your favorite podcasts? No, sir. And I'm here to tell you that the beer you should be cracking is one from our new sponsor, Circle Brewing, located in Austin, Texas at 2340 West Breaker Lane, Suite B. You can have a frosty one in their fabulous tap room where lots of seasonal specials await you, or you can get lots of their treats in the bottle or can at your local craft beer retailer. Try their award-winning Alibi Blonde or their diabolically rich Devil Knight Barrel-Aged Stout. They have so many solid choices, and they are the official sponsor of OneOfUs.net. Support Circle Brewing and support us, and we really need your support. There is no site without subscribers, and that depends on you. Please think about becoming a subscriber, because we cannot do this without you. The four different subscription tiers are there to give different flavors of bonus content, but we absolutely need your help, whether you sign up to give 2 5 10 or $25 a month. Don't be one of those people who love something but won't lift a finger to keep it around. Help one of us and keep those podcasts coming. Deliberations of Doom. Man, what do you think of that new theme song we got going oh, on there? I love it so much. It's got like this whole Twilight Zone John Carpenter thing going. I love it. Yeah, I'm really quite fond of it. Aaron Jeffers, our music guy, made that one for us, and I was uh, quite taken with it. You're the man. Yeah, so good. But we are, this is the first of the second volume of Deliberations of Doom with our new cast that doesn't have a guest. We obviously did the Halloween shows with Brian Salisbury as a special guest, but this is the first one with our new core crew. Of course, I am Chris, and joining me is... Patience! And then the new guys over here... What's up? This is Alan. I'm Nicholas. So, uh, I don't know, last time did we talk at all about y'all's background in horror or or film? I can't remember. Um, I don't think so, but for me, Alan here, it's pretty much just... Ever since I was around 12 years old, I think it was Nightmare on Elm Street, and since then it's been like into it very heavily. All genre, really, but horror really kills it for me. Nightmare on Elm Street was the one who did it for me, too, actually, where I remember like I was so terrified of horror movies. I mean, I'd seen a few, but I was like, it freaked me out too much. And then I read it on videotape with a friend, and I was so frightened, and it was the first time that I ever remember going, hey, that was fun being scared. Yeah. And no, from that, then on, I was just addicted. That only killed me because the whole point of it is it's, you're scared to go to sleep. Yeah. Like, literally go to sleep. So not only are you afraid of what's in the shadow, but once you fall asleep. I do specifically remember seeing, like, a hatted figure, like, silhouette in a window when I was trying to go to sleep. And I remember being like, God... These movies are fucking me up. Like, <laughs> me being like 12 years old and just like thinking, how am I going to get through life like this? Yeah. What, what about you, Nick? Uh, my first big experience with horror was uh, Chucky, Child's Play. Nice. Oh, really? Okay. And I don't think I'd even seen the movie. I just knew that it existed. And like I saw the toys at like a carnival or something. And it was so thoroughly terrifying that it convinced me that like movies can be like a medium that moves people. Does it still freak you out when you see Brad Dorf and something else and hear his voice? You're <laughs> yeah. like, <"Wait." laughs> right. He's like Billy Babbitt and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah. In fact, the newest one, Cult of Chucky, has a ton of references yeah. to that movie Is that right? because oh, it's obviously so good. voices it. And, uh, 
I forget somebody else involved with the film too is was somehow arbitrarily involved with one one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I can't remember, but um, yeah, it's set in a mental hospital, so they're like, we gotta throw like a so bunch of jokes. references yeah. about also, it. The two new Chucky movies are pretty good. Yeah, well, I'm surprised I, by the it. new one is yeah. fantastic. It's very yeah. meta. I've enjoyed all of them since uh, what was it, uh, Bride of Chucky? Yeah, I was like, wow, they've all been pretty fun. Yeah, since, good, since they were movies. like, let's just. Have a good time now. Since Chucky became aware. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's the one exception in horror where them going meta and more funny actually worked to the benefit of the series instead of against it. Because usually that's like, you know, the beginning of the end of any horror franchise. It almost (laughs) breaks the fourth wall in a lot of ways. The new one. It does. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so that was you. You found that scary and that was you sort of going. Terrifying. So yeah, it just made me aware of what movies are capable of doing is, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and since then, you've been a devoted fan, and you're a filmmaker yourself, right? Yeah, I've made a couple short films and uh, studied film in college, among other things. Haven't done much with it in the very recent past, but give it time. Yeah, now that we're all here, <laughs> <laughs> we'll have our own horror movie I just, imprint. Uh, I know Nick just actually wrote a children's book. That, which is really super cool, I think. It's called, like, Don't Go to Sleep or You Might Die. <laughs> no. no, it's a sweet, gentle children's book. I'm oh, saving okay. the scary ones for a little bit later. Okay. <laughs> he doesn't want to traumatize his nephew quite yet. <laughs> the, the sequel to Go the Fuck to Sleep called Go the Fuck to Sleep or I Will Cut Your Throat. Or right. Freddy and Chucky will come and get you. Uh, so we actually asked questions of, uh, the, asked our fans if they had any questions for us, which we don't always do. And I got to admit, both these are good questions that, uh, are hard to answer. So we'll just do our best here. No promises. Bradley Martin, who regularly records with us on uh, Screener Squad, says, which do you prefer? Oh, yeah. And this is the ghost movies episode. So this was irrelevant. Which do you prefer? The tragic ghost that doesn't mean to terrify, but needs to be heard by the protagonist or the actual evil ghost that will wreck your life, regardless of the protagonist's good intentions and pursuit to solve the mystery. Uh, and he asks, favorite go- ghost of each trope. Uh, does anybody have anything they want to enter in on this one? Um, I could go ahead. Yeah, this is a good question for me because and this, this whole uh, theme of these ghost movies because ghost horror movies are my scariest. Yeah, me too. They hit me the hardest out of any of them. Me too. Like something about the helplessness of it. Like slashers, I get they could happen in real life. You know, ghosts, that's debatable, I guess. But slashery, like, I know I could punch him at least. <laughs> you know, a ghost, like, what are you going to do? you just like, you're helpless to it. So my answer is the... Um, the ghost that's just evil <laughs> scares me. I prefer that in movies. The there's always a, a real sense of relief once you under like or you start to get the understanding that this ghost just needs help. It becomes like the story can still be good, the movie can still be good, but it doesn't really hit me as hard. Like I there's some movies like that that are incredible, but really the ghost that's just out to get you regardless. Like and there's nothing you do. Those movies. They really hit me hard. I love those. See, I was thinking about this as we were watching the stack. I was like, every ghost movie that's like that isn't actually a ghost movie. It's really usually a possession or demon movie in the end. It's just that quality of it behaves like ghosts up until mm-hmm. it doesn't. I mean, like, in so many examples, whereas the other example, it's always ghosts. They're that's, just spirits. That's true. I never really thought about that. <laughs> I, right now, I'm trying to think of an example that is outright just like a ghost, ghosting, where it's like a very malicious ghost, and I can't think of one where it doesn't it, end up being like a witch they always or end possession. Up tying or it into some demonic... Yeah forces or something. They're never just... I mean, like, even Paranormal Activity with the whole selling point. I mean, even fucking Poltergeist. Well, that's what... That was the one that was going to be my pick for, like, the evil ghost film that's probably my favorite is is Poltergeist, because I feel like... I I don't really feel like there's a... 
I mean, it, yes, the house was built on an Indian burial ground, but that's as far as it goes. There really isn't well, anything the, else going on other than they're just like pissed off. That's so you get to the sequels, yeah. but yeah, well, so there are there the are a ton of actual straight up ghosts in Poltergeist, but the guiding force is like a demonic presence, you know. But just, yeah, they don't actually ever quite explain it. I no. mean, it's very vague. It's all yeah. very vague. It is, but you know, sometimes vague is best, especially when you're dealing with the supernatural and things. If you over-explain it, it, it you start getting into stuff. That rarely works as well as uh, The Ring did it, where it's like, oh, now we have to do a ton of research and yeah. figure out this stuff. I mean, that did it. That's the benchmark for the best that's been for that trope. Oh, and mm-hmm. we're definitely going to talk so, about that So many tonight. people have copied that and done it so badly since then. And it always, you over-explain it and you start to go, okay, now I'm starting it. Like, you're just like, it feels like writers desperately trying to find a way out of the corner they've written themselves Because it's not scary when you have to do homework. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, I totally agree. Like, I think, and actually, this is what... By answering this question, I prefer the tragic ghosts mm. rather than the malicious ones. Because they're more poetic. They're more poetic. You've got an actual character that's the bad guy. And every like malicious ghost story feels like it's got at least one moment in there where there's some pseudo-scientific psychobabble, like, you know, BS to try to explain it away just because, like, well, we want something scary and we can't think of any better reason for it to be here. So, yeah, you know. Whatever. I, I mean, like a lot of those ones that were where it is like that, that, that just the, the tragic ghost, it really does. It's, it's gets, they tend to be more cinematography oriented. They tend Absolutely. to be like, like, like I said, much more poetic in many ways. And it depends on your, your, your mileage may vary on what you're looking for from your horror films. And I think tonight we're talking about movies that fit into both categories for here, sure. which is really cool. And even ones that it's hard to pin down exactly which one it is. I, for the tragic, I definitely think that Sixth Sense captured it best because, I mean, even though there's multiple entities involved in Sixth Sense, you really get a feel for how desperate they are to just communicate. And it's really harrowing in a lot of ways. I feel like that one definitely was, it, it was spooky. It was creepy. Yeah. No, I mean, I remember, I loved that film so much when it came out. I saw it like three or four times in the theater. And the, I've told this story many times before, but the first time I ever saw it, I was on a first date with a girl who <laughs> shockingly kept dating me after this. And the scene where uh, he's sitting on the bed next to the kid and the kid goes, oh, I see dead people everywhere, only they don't know she, they're dead. I go, oh, he's already dead. And she fucking socked me in the jaw. <laughs> I uh, kind of did the same thing with the others in, uh, in the movie theater. And I was like, oh, and I said yeah. it you know, to my, my husband and he was just like, really? Fuck you. <laughs> Uh, and by the way, this is a spoiler podcast, so we will be talking about all of these movies in full, unafraid spoiler sense. Uh, we will try not as hard as we can outside of the six sense there not to spoil movies that we did not previously. Bruce Willis warn you was about. dead the whole time. Yeah, if you don't know the ending of Six Sense, <laughs> welcome out of your coma. Like I don't know what happened. If you don't know the ending of Six Sense, you're probably not listening to this podcast. Yeah, exactly. you're, you're like you just woke up from a coma yeah. and you're like, what's this whole internet thing? I'll press this button. Wait, there's horror movies. <laughs> what? That's a thing. Wait, how long have you been in a coma for? <laughs> uh, all right, so we'll save the second question we have for this uh, second half of the podcast, and we'll get into getting started i decided obvious some weeks i have a more specific plan of like how to order these this time i just went with a date of release uh 
which means, speaking of hell yeah, we're starting with The Legend of Hell House, 1973's adaptation of the Richard Matheson novel Hell House, uh, which, another thing I've said a lot, I think is the scariest book ever written, period. Like, Like, it is so terrifying. I read it for the first time like a year and a half ago, and I couldn't sleep all night. And that's not me. I don't do that. Nothing scares me so bad that I'm like too scared to close my eyes. And that scared the fuck out of me. I remember we had this conversation and you were like, I just watched Hell House. Or some red house. I just just read Hell House and I need to like let you borrow it and you need to read it because I'm freaking out right now. And I was just like, okay. It's so terrifying. And this is like, I mean, it's not a, a dead on adaptation of it. It doesn't really stray from the source material in terms of adding new stuff. In fact, if anything, it, it way tones down the degree of depravity from the book, especially with the, the sexual aspects. And that, I was gonna, I was gonna ask about that, yeah. In the book, it's a lot crazier, that stuff. Okay. Uh, but, uh, anything by Richard Matheson, first off, if you're a horror fan, is well worth reading. I mean, he's one of the all time greats. He wrote, I am legend course, which is uh, the book that one could argue started the zombie genre, despite being about, quote, vampires, end quote. <laughs> he also wrote uh, The Incredible Shrinking Man, though a science f- turned into science fiction films. It's actually a pretty horrifying story in and of itself. It is. You're not, you're not wrong. Um, I, in my head, I always want to I always, t- part of me is always like, oh no, Richard Matheson's still alive. He can never die. <laughs> Just one of my favorite writers ever. But uh, the story here is so there's this legendary house, like as in the legend of Hell House, that was run by a guy who's an Aleister Crowley, like, like basically a cultist, a cultist. spiritualist, you know, yeah, who lived there, uh, Belasco, uh, which they refer to as the Mount Everest of haunted houses. And uh, this millionaire wants to basically get an answer to is there survival after death? Like, if you're going to find out anywhere, it's going to be in this house. And multiple groups of, of people and paranormal investigators have been there. And they have all died investigating this house, except one dude, Roddy McDowell, who was a what they call a physical medium. In other words, a, a medium that can uh, that actually you know has like a ectoplasm that comes out of him and can make things move and stuff. Uh, so he agrees somehow. They must have drove a dump truck or money up to his house to come back here again, along with a uh, physicist who is obviously there as, as the skeptic uh, and his wife, Anne, and a mental medium, which it, they, he complains about. It's like, Jesus, she's practically a teenager. <laughs> she's so young. I don't think she's ready for this. And they all go with a bunch of equipment, including a, like, constantly re- like referred to obliquely the machine that's going to come into it at some point that the physicist guy is bringing in, which, which by the way, I think is, like, the only movie I can think of with ghosts that does anything like this with like sort of mixing like science science and supernatural together in a way, like as if they're not, Incompatible. Mm-hmm. The science and supernatural and religion. Yeah. From like the other meetings, like they were all like sharing a space. Like, and it's really interesting. It is a unique thing for these movies. And as they spend the, you know, they're, they're supposed to be there for what, I think five days or something. And as they're spending the night, the, the, the film is constantly putting the, the titles on the screen of like what time it is, what day it is. Uh, things waste no time in being clear. Some shit is definitely going down real quick. This is not one of those slow burn, get to it ghost movies, which is odd for this period of time, quite yeah. frankly, for a movie this early to be right off the bat, shit's flying around. Yeah, and I was gonna say, like, I, the efficiency of this movie, I love 70s movies. The first scene 
is literally what you just described. It's one guy telling the other guy, this is what's happening. Get to it. And the very next scene, they're in that house. And there is no question of like, is there a haunting? It's like, they're, you're going here because there is definitely a haunting and we're going to figure out what it is. <laughs> yeah. It's really fun. Like for a movie, just the jumpy jumpstart just, like that. And this guy going into it, like, Oh, I totally accept shit's going down. I just believe there's got to be a scientific explanation for what's happening. And he doesn't mean it in the typical skeptical sense, like somebody is lying or fucking with it. He means like, I'm going to find out what causes this phenomenon yeah. in a scientific way. It's more like what I'm going to figure out what are ghosts. Yeah. Like what, like why? And that, that's so much like the fluffy stuff of it. It's like, this is what causes ghosts. Essentially, <laughs> Hanging over the entire film, Film is, is the like the ghost, if you will, of Belasco, who is like I said, very much an Aleister Crowley analog, who was into sex magic and orgies and like dark depraved bestiality, bestiality, <laughs> which, which you know, should um, I go on? <laughs> <laughs> Necrophiliac tendencies, and those aspects of the haunting play into sort of like affecting everyone's behaviors. Like everyone is being affected to some degree or another by the house. The the um, uh, the young new medium is convinced that he had a son that is begging her for help. And she is coming towards it with a sense of empathy, which bad call (laughs) (laughs) overall. I love the way this movie plays out. This is my third time seeing it. Uh, The first two times were before I read the book. This is the first time I've seen it since I read the book. And it's funny that the first two times watching it, I was much more like this is campy, but fun. Now that I've read the book, it's much scarier because I'm bringing much more emotionally into it of like, Oh Jesus, how fucked up this house really is. And I will say that I can't think of another ghost movie that does the sort of like traditional paranormal investigators taking on a haunted house thing with as much sort of like intensity as this film gets into. I mean, there's certainly films like we'll talk about later, like The Conjuring, but that does things by a more trope familiar sense. Mm -hmm. This takes a lot of odd turns. Yeah. And it's always, it's always a thing in these movies. Like this is like the. This movie starts with the middle point of most other horror, like ghost movies. There's always a middle point of a movie where all the like professionals come in, and once they're in there, like things seem to calm down. It's like okay, these people know what they're doing. They're going to take control of the situation and at least explain some stuff. This movie starts with that rather than coming in like at the end of the second act where like the you know um, I forgot her name in Poltergeist. Um, oh my god! What oh, is what? This? oh oh what? oh! Um, this house is clear. Yeah yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, it's always in ghost movies, like, where that person shows up, where I feel a sense of relief. It's like, okay, someone's going to be here at least, like, that isn't scared of this. This movie starts with people who aren't scared of it. And, like, let's go up from there. Well, everybody but Roddy McDowell, who is, like, as they say at one point, like, he's closed himself off from his psychic sense because he's, like, he knows how fucking dangerous and tricky this place is. And he's, like... I want no part of the shit. I took my money. <laughs> I'm here to be the one who survives and gets out at the end. Uh, but Nick, why don't you give us your impressions here? Well, what do you think? I of this actually, movie? this one bothered me a little bit because I'm a big fan of Richard Matheson. And one of the things I like about him is how he develops his characters and how his characters work in extreme circumstances. And mm-hmm. this is an adaptation of his own novel. Like he wrote the screenplay. For yes, it. he did. And I feel like he missed the mark. I feel like starting in the middle of it is a good way to get going, but we don't get into any of the characters. They're all just types. So we've got, I mean, as you described, we've got our skeptic, and we've got the young medium, we've got the survivor, and we've got the wife that's just along for the ride. Yeah. And none of them develop or change that much. So, like, at first, I was really pumped that, like, we're in the middle of a horror movie, like, right away. 
But as it went on, I was like, okay, so is this just an excuse for special effects? You know, like it actually okay. it rubbed me a little bit the wrong way. This one is this coming from? Have you read the book as well? I've not read the book, oh. so and like by all means. But I can only imagine how good it is because I know like yeah. This imagine this starting point and getting much deeper into it, and honestly, having scenes that were so scary, I had to put it down in points and go, nope, I'm done for right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested because in I don't find the movie. Terribly scary. No. I mean, it could be uh, it's like desensitized with all like the horror I've seen in ghost stories is to the point. A horror movie from 1972, um, like a ghost story, like it seems like it's very soft around the edges compared to some other stuff. Um, it is interesting, and the performances are really good. And like, I enjoyed watching the movie, but at no point I was like frightened by it. No, no, you bring more Which, to it from the outside, like I said, than than the movie actually presents on its own. But like, my initial take of it being campy fun still holds true. It is campy fun. It's yeah. it's it's very six sixties seventies. It's uh, it got a, a little bit of that wholesome swinging period of it. It does a lot of stuff nobody had done before this. And is, is this the horniest ghost movie to date? I mean, I, I mean, past no, that, no, I'm. I'm Hornier movies have come. The entity at the time is this the horniest ghost movie that was made? Because it is horny as hell. Yeah, it's really, really interested in like women as sexual objects. Yeah, and to be fair, the women that are in it are really, really hot. Absolutely. Um, I actually, you know, I've never really liked older. You know, films like, you know, pre-80s, I guess you could say, pre-my childhood. I've always, like, I, (laughs) you know, like, older movies, I've always, like, oh, they're so lame. But I've been really digging some of these older British films that we've been, like, House That Drip Blood was fucking fantastic. One of the best anthologies ever. Um, And I, so I was really digging the beginning of this. Um, This movie's just so stylish. Now that I do agree with. It's I, so classy. I love that. I would live in this, like regardless of the ghosts or anything, just the way the house looks. I'm like, I would love to live in a house that looks just like that. One of the first notes I took <laughs> while watching it is that the set design is impeccable. This is yeah. as good as designing a haunted house gets. Yep. Yeah. And the direction is beautiful as well. Absolutely gorgeous. And everyone, and their costume design, I mean, it's just impeccable in every single way. I would say that the only thing I didn't quite like was the final reveal of the machine. It was kind of looked boxy and weird. And I mean, now <laughs> well, computers, you know, I'm the, a big fan yeah, of that. Yeah, nowadays design. they can put that whole thing on your, like, he pulls out, out his, <laughs> yeah, right? he pulls out his Apple watch <laughs> and opens the app. Is it, is it John Hugh? Is it, or how, or Hugh, the <laughs> director. I mean, granted, he's mostly done, like, British television shows, like, for example, Doctor Who, and yeah. and you know, he did the Avenger, the original, like, the British Avengers, yeah. the, the spies, not the superheroes. Yeah. So, um... I mean, it was. I just was like, "Wow, this is very Doctor Old School Doctor Who." As far as the big machine reveal, um, I okay, I get it. It's the seventies, but can we stop slapping women every time <laughs> they you don't want them to behave the yeah. way? It's like I you're mean, too horny for your own good. I know, stop, stop this! Stop <laughs> being so horny. I'm just gonna slap the <laughs> shit out of you. It right might now. develop into a case of hysteria. Oh my god! <laughs> Seriously, like I, I mean, I understand that. That I mean. 
that was the the theme of the time. But cripes, it's just so misogynist. The, yeah, I, I totally agree. But I also think, like, at least his character motiv- motivation, this was a reasonable moment to slap a woman. It's like you're actively <laughs> trying to sleep with me, and I know you don't want to. Yeah, when she is being possessed by Velasco, yeah, it's kind of like I'm not quite sure how to handle this. <laughs> well, you guys do not have permission to slap the shit out of me if I ever act like that. Well, wait, what? Never mind. I feel like that would have happened by now. Velasco. We're just going to take that back. I mean, it is an interesting thing in this movie. Like, It seems like all this ghost one to do is like, Let's get let's party. Let's, let's get bone down. Let's, let's get yeah, drunk. Let's seriously. bone. Like if there went all squares, it would have been like a this a gun this house had a fun really time. Good time, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the ultimate reveal, right? That uh, Velasco was in this house this whole time because he was short and ashamed of being short, so he yeah. just hid himself away. Now as a ghost, he's like living his best life. Right? Well, his life's awful. I did really <laughs> love that the reveals like he's like an evil prick because he was just like a short dude. That's really funny. To be honest with you, that. That's actually the thing that I found to be the most macabre, is this dude had his legs amputated so that he could wear prosthetics to be taller. Like, talk about short... No offense Napoleon complex stuff. Right? I mean, no offense to little guys out there all around the world. We love you. You're fine. I'm deeply offended. Do not Patience says, just promise to love you if you're short. Yeah, I'm fine with it. (laughs) Uh, I will say that the actor who played Belasco in that scene who's just literally... A Alfred. taxidermy Sorry, guy is, I just gave it away. Yeah, is Alfred from the Tim Burton Batman films. Oh, man. He, he, oh, no, he went on I to play. I recognized him. Yeah, I don't realize I was like, oh, my Uncredited. Uh, <laughs> uncredited role. And he does the, the voice of Belasco as well. Yeah. Um, the only other thing that I w- that really... I mean, I did enjoy this movie. I had a great time with it. But I think the only other thing that really disappointed me was because apparently they cut out all of the depraved sexuality parts of this movie. And I don't want to see that yeah. shit. Yeah. I, don't like think, that. I don't think they filmed it. They just, there's a lot of that. No, in the they book. did. They did. did they? They, they, there was a whole set of deleted scenes that they cut out because they were so sexually perverse wow. that they could not be shown to the public. And I want to see that director's cut. That's, that's, it's probably right on the cusp of when that would have flied. Maybe like 72 still like, Dealing with some code stuff, and like it's right before movie, like said the '70s started to get really bucked with what they would put in movies. It's interesting if this was like two years later, what would have been in there? And this is in the same period when Hammer was already starting to put out like their definitely sex or sexier heavy stuff. You know, like the was it Lust for a Vampire and shit like that. You know, Uh what's the one that we watched, Life Force? That wasn't Hammer, right? But that was like straight up naked chicks everywhere. It was funny. I was like, I'm on a bunch of horror Facebook forum, the like groups, most of which almost everyone on kind of acts like an idiot most of the time. Max (laughs) says really stupid shit, and I'm always like. Maybe I don't want to be on the same more, but somebody put up uh, who's the sexiest vampire and one of those you know, memes of the picture, and eight people were like, the simple fact that Matilda May isn't on this list means that you have no fucking clue what you're talking about, and you should quit this group immediately. Well, it's, it's Robert Pattinson, right? No, it is not. It is not. <laughs> oh, did he play a vampire in something? He's, he's, very, he's a very sparkly vampire. Rare breed. Rare breed. Uh, overall, I'm glad that we did get to see this movie because I it, it's just another tick on, on my horror belt that I would have never watched otherwise and now I definitely want to read the book. And it's it's a film that like I will continue to go back to because it's just fun and I agree with you Nick there isn't as much character development as you would hope for 
but there is some degree of like just you know just enough about these characters to be concerned about them and know that something's wrong when they start changing. I mean, especially the the young psychic uh, chick. I think Pamela Franklin. That's, that's what I was going to say. She's the one who gets the most. Actually, she was given a lot of notice, actually, critically at the time of people, you know, who were being like kind of dismissive of the film, but going, but you got to admit Pamela Franklin was great in this. And I totally agree with that. She's amazing. I mean, the, our skeptic physicist guy, like he was, he was all right, but like just playing like sort of stiff upper lip sort of guy, you know, like everyone else just played their parts. She was interesting motive. Like the one bit where uh, she came down on him for being a skeptic actually is one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. Mm. And he, he acts as though he doesn't know where this is coming from, but like he's been doing this this whole time, and that felt like a real human interaction. Yeah, I agreed. There are moments in this film that do hold up as, as, as feeling like this scene is important. Let's do this right dramatically. But most of this is just for the point of a fun haunted house movie, and it delivers on that level. Yeah, I, 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 I would argue that people would normally go, I don't really like old horror, older films. This is a movie that I think you would be an exception for you. This is not a movie that wastes any time getting into being a very straight up horror movie and has a lot of fun with it. Right. Like if The Exorcist took too long for you, yeah. this is the movie you should be watching. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but like, there's at least 45 minutes less time spent of like not having the devil in this movie. Uh, one extra side note I wanted to add here. If you've seen Grindhouse with the little uh, fake trailers in between it, Edgar Wright did one called Don't, and it was inspired by this. That he was like, yeah, I, I just wanted that. to do like a something that was basically the legend of Hell House. Cool. Which I thought was kind of cool. That's very cool. Anybody have any last notes on this one before nope. we can move on? To I am so one? excited to talk about one of my favorite films ever. Oh, which film would that be, Patience? Um, I don't know. It starts with an F and ends with Reitners. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the Frighteners. I remember. All right. So first off, this came out after Heavenly Creatures. And I remember yeah. seeing Heavenly Creatures. Already a fan of Peter Jackson at that point because I thought Dead Alive was like the best it's zombie the movie yeah. we'd ever seen at that point. I was like, holy shit. It's one what? of the all-time like par- party horror movies. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I will watch anything. I mean, I had already, for that point, gone back and watched everything you'd done before that. The only film by, I, I was, I'm still like, I'm not with you guys with is Bad Taste, which yeah. I still can't. I'm like, I get it. It was his first film, but eh. But Heavenly Creatures was felt like his move towards like, Oscar type filmmaker, which obviously eventually happened with Return of the King, but after he followed it up with this with the Frighteners, which had a slew of like references hidden in it to Heavenly Creatures because everyone who signed on to this film did it because they saw Heavenly Creatures and went, "Who the fuck is this guy? I will do." Like Danny Elfman, who did the score, had no idea what the movie was even about. Before he signed on, he was like, "No, I just want to work with that guy. I want to do whatever he does next." But uh, patience, you—it uh, it seems uh, ideal for you to describe the plot of this. Oh movie. well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's um, this is more of a horror comedy, which we love often. Um, so basically, Michael J. Fox is the main character, and his wife—he's an architect. And his wife dies in a horrible accident, which they talk about later. And after that accident, he becomes a psychic or, you know, a, a, a medium in some way where he can communicate with the dead. And so he has the, the dead, uh, his friends that are dead, that he actually sends out to other people's houses to haunt so that he can come and exercise them and make money. That's basically how he makes a living in, in a sort of con man type of way, even though they're actually real ghosts. And, so yeah. and, and to be clear, this is the sort of like medium who, who can see 
see ghosts the same way Lydia and Beetlejuice can see Alec Baldwin and Gene exactly. Davis. They're yeah. like just there talking in a normal sort of way, as far as he it's, can see. It, yeah, and it's not a big deal. They're just like his friends that hang out and walk through walls and jaws are falling off. Um, <laughs> and so he comes across uh, this. Is she, is she a doctor or a nurse? I can't remember. Doctor or oh, she's she's a doctor. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So she's a doctor, and um, her husband dies, and he notices that there's a number on his head, and he previously um, had investigated or was traumatized by another serial killer. Oh gosh, that sounds really this, convoluted. This, now this it is a very convoluted. Yeah, film. now that really dense. Trying That's to a explain lot. this story, watching the movie, you're like, oh, this all makes sense. But trying to explain it, yeah, but well, there's kind of like the B story happening of the, a serial killer played by Jake, Jake Busey, Busey, who went on a spree kill. with an accomplice who's like held up in a house yeah. in the '60s. In the '60s, yeah, yeah, way back, and we kind of get some like. Old footage of that that's done by the um, doctor he meets. It is a very convoluted. It's and then he gets executed. I mean, that it all it's comes just, together. It all that thing comes loud. together. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's no big surprise that ultimately this thing that they saying there's a, un- a weird amount of death by heart attack going on in this town of people who are too young and healthy to die that way. Michael J. Fox being the one to notice everyone who dies has a number, like a spiritual number on their forehead that he's seeing. He's like, what does that mean? And the previous Which, victims, while the killers were alive, had carved numbers. Yeah, Jake Busey yeah. so would, his, him being the, serial, the original serial killer, he would carve the numbers on their head. Um, I remember this when I very first saw this movie, when it very first came out, I think I saw it on VHS. Um, Why are you ashamed of that? Yeah, that's the only way you watch The Frighteners the first time. You should be shouting that from the rooftop. I saw it on VHS. No, is like, I swear, I'm only 25. Yeah, no, I'm like, I'm like such a millennial, you guys. I I think I rented this movie maybe 20 times when I was doing things. I love this movie. Good for you, man. Um... I remember the special effects absolutely blowing me away when I very first saw this movie. And then reading about how Peter Jackson had created his own like little special effects and this was like kind of their first project. I was like, yeah, this is amazing. Like they well, was, did such a good job. It was Weta who who's won a billion Oscars since then, especially for the Lord of the Rings, you know, the New Zealand special effects company that at that point before this film had only ever done physical effects. They had never done digital CGI effects. CGI or anything. Uh, and they fused in a much smaller digital effects company. It kind of absorbed them into Weta to be able to do this. And at this point, this was, I believe, a record holder for the single amount of largest amount of digital shots in any movie ever made up well, until this point. I think this is the first major movie, maybe the first movie ever, that actually digitized a whole bunch of its film footage to incorporate CG effects. Like, Mm -hmm. this is the first time, like, that's a standard thing now, or you just shoot it digitally. Yeah. But, like, these were the first guys, like, they they innovated this. They developed this technology. That's so cool. Um, I Just some notes that I have is I actually feel like Lucy, who's the, the female doctor who ends up falling in love with Al, uh, Michael J. Fox. Trini Alvarado. Uh, yes. I feel like her husband actually kind of gets a bum deal in this whole entire thing because he's not a bad guy. He's just he kind really of... He really is, No, though. he's he, just... He's, he's an oblivious douche. He's yeah. a little bit self-absorbed. A little? I wouldn't say he's, like, full-blown narcissistic, but he's just a little... But he's, like, I trying... Feel like I'm gonna have- There's that scene where he's doing lunges and she tries to say something and he, like, 
gives the finger switch <laughs> mid lunch, and I was like, oh god. And then he's also like, guess what I did? I booked Medieval World for our anniversary, <laughs> which, which she hates. Which she yeah, which she hates. And the fact, but, but that's the totally thing is like that'd be cool for you. For her, it's like, how do you not know that this is not my thing? Well, I mean, I get that, but I just feel like he kind of gets. I mean, he's trying. I'm gonna have to nice, have a talk a with Carlos. Hunt. Oh god, here we go. Um, I just want to say. We need more judge. I love <laughs> the judge. You know who played that, right? Uh, John Astin. Yeah, who's best known as Gomez Adams from the Adams yep. family, was playing that role, who weirdly is still alive. What? <laughs> <laughs> Jaw intact. Yeah. He, he probably looks right? like he did in that movie. He probably right looks more yeah. like that, yeah. Uh, there's just, okay, so there's a couple of problems, though. The the fact that the cap- cops are so inept that they're, like, shooting everybody through the, in the museum scene. They're just, like, shooting at Michael J. Fox. They don't care how that many people thing, are there. That whole thing, you're a suspect, and this place is filled with rare artifacts. Let's just fucking, Let's like, spray this place with gunfire. Um, and, but the FBI guy, uh... I can't remember. Jeffrey Combs. Jeffrey Combs, odd legendary. legendary He's yeah. absolutely so creepy in this. He I mean, steals this movie. Yeah, I want to say he almost steals it from Michael J. Fox. Almost. Um, uh, so Peter Jackson and sought him out. He saw he was a huge fan of the reanimator, and he's like, I gotta work with this guy. And honestly, you know, and it's fair to be fair, after Reanimator, Jeffrey Combs' career had a very fallow period of going with films that were even more obscure than the reanimator. <laughs> and he was like, I don't even know if this guy's still working. Now since Combs has become a very sought after television actor, he is I think I think he may be the only actor who's in every Star Trek except for the original. Oh, wow. No <laughs> like shit. playing wow. a different character. That's amazing. Yeah. That's um, just crazy. But uh, he's he's one of those guys, yeah, he gets plenty of work, but at this point it was still a little fallow. And yeah, he's like, I want that crazy combs, but like to level 11. My body is a roadmap of pain. Yeah, he, he almost it's, feels like, a, like Agent Cooper from Twin Peaks. Yeah, if like he went right. off the deep end, <laughs> like he got out of the Black Lodge and this is him now. Yeah. Exactly. It is so incredible. So season like, three of Twin Peaks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But this movie, I mean, watch it over and over and over again. This movie never has disappointed me once. I still love it. And I was so happy that it's, it's still amazing. It's still great. Other than, like, the very end CGI, which is obviously bad. But come on. You have well, to I was actually going to mention, it pains me to say, the CGI, like, it's so rarely where a movie, like, the out-of-date stuff takes me out of it. But it was, like, rough for me watching this movie because it's something I love so much. And it really looks really dated. It's, it's dated. so bad. I mean, it's well, a, it's because there's so much, of so it. much of it. Uh, like they like it's like they got ambitious about what they could do, and they went too far. Uh, but it's like just a year before, like Jurassic Park, you CGI here and there, and it still looks pretty good 20 now. Twenty times the budget. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you just you look at it, and like there's so much I love about this movie. There's so much like that scene towards the end where they're running around the hospital. The use of light to go from past. To like, present, yeah, that like idea, it's so cool. The, the way, way they, they used that. it, like it's like because it, it's a film that I would have asked that question otherwise. Okay, so he's a psychic. Is the only thing he can do is talk to these ghosts? It's like, and the way the movie makes the decision to make it in the middle of that action scene work against him. It's cool where, yeah. because he's in this deeply horrifying place. He's having a hard time distinguishing between the history of the place, what happened in his reality, and what's currently going on. And it's really it's cool really the way they invented. achieve it. Is like he'll turn around the corner, and it's not like. A weird cut. It's just that hallway is lit and everything's painted new and the lights will dim and it looks decrepit. And that's like really cool shit. It's like really well directed. Yeah. 
I think, and I agree with you about the CG stuff, like, it was great at the time, yeah. right? Really, like, ahead of its time kind of stuff, but watching it now, you realize how many scenes are included just for the sake of the CG mm-hmm. that don't further the script necessarily. So, for instance, like, the opening sequence where uh, our serial killer ghost guy is, like, underneath carpets and through wallpaper and coming through walls, except there's no reason, aside from the CG, that he has to, like keep himself in those things. Well, they, they, they have a hard time deciding what the rules are. Exactly. Because yes. like, it feels like at points, if he doesn't have a physical thing to be part of, he can't physically interact with the environment seems to be a rule. But then well, other times that's clearly not the case. case. Yeah. It gets washy. And like that same effect that they have in there was used in like, I think the first Nightmare on Elm Street, where Freddy comes to the wall and it looks incredible because they just Actually, used a real wall. I was like, going to say, yeah, that's a practical effect. Yeah, it was a latex yeah, wall. Yeah, right? yeah, and there's no incorporation of practical effects in this, which is like interesting with uh, Peter Jackson. Like, no, he got like a new toy and they went like really crazy with it. And at the time, I loved it and I still love the movie outside of that. CGI I mean, there's stuff. not no integration of practical effects. The judge is a practical effect that they just put the ghost film, yeah, yeah which is yeah. one of the most effective. Yeah, it's really yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah, who's very cool looking with his whole removable jaw. Let's say, like, at points, the, like, whenever it's Michael J. Fox being funny, it's really funny. Like, he is such a natural. He was so gifted. It's a shame. This was his last feature film, by the way. Last I was, I was wondering, because, like, I was thinking about it, like, I was thinking, like, Back to the Future, Doc Hollywood, Story of My Success, or Secret of My... I was, like, trying to think of all of Because I love Michael J. Fox. Yeah. I was like, man, I love him based off, he, like, six movies. He went to Spin City after this because it meant that he could stay in one place. Yeah. And he was like, okay, I'm already feeling like I'm starting to... I know that I'm ill. Yeah. Uh, although he hadn't revealed it publicly, and I want to be near my family and not have to move around. He, he's That's just why so that. charismatic. See him trembling, like, as a character, and also, like, get that little twinge. It's like, ah. Uh. Yeah. Yeah, it's curious. It's curious. It's like um, how much that is like using the performance, or how much was he affected by at this time? Because like he is such a charismatic, like lovable, like figure. Everything he ever did. Yeah, you root for him the moment you see him. He's so good. Even in movies I don't particularly like him in them, you're like, I like Michael J. Fox. And in this one in particular, I think it's a very dramatic performance. Like it's just pitch perfect almost the whole way through. Even though he's one of the most recognizable, you know people ever. Yeah. It's still like, uh, he feels like he's genuinely this character. Okay, so weirdly apparently they had to keep retaking a bunch of scenes because he could not stop calling the judge Doc. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. (laughs) He kept kept calling him because there's a lot of scenes where he's like he's referring to him in a very sort of a way that he did talk to Doc Brown in Back to the Future where it was like where he's calling him Judge instead of Doc and he kept doing it. He's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I did it again. (laughs) I was actually talking to Nick about this on the way over here where um, Jake Busey, I mean he just (laughs) chews all the scenery. I love Jake Busey. He's great. I love him. Like I you can't fault him. He's trying. He's trying, and he <laughs> and he succeeds in just absolutely becoming just this huge force in this movie. And I I liked him. He's genuinely creepy. It's like one of those things all, as and, well with Dee Wallace, who is like his teenage girlfriend when the killings happen. Where you're they're like, oh well, she was there, but she didn't participate in the killings. Is what you're sold at first until we see the flashbacks later and find out. Oh Jesus Christ. Which is past the point where, like, the movie reveals, dude, she's just as crazy and murderous yeah. as he is. Because the movie sells you on the idea she's this innocent, like, bystander, this person who was just taken advantage 
of. And that was a Peter Jackson fought for her because at this point she was people, audiences still thought of her as E.T.'s uh, uh, Elliot's mom from yeah. E.T. You know, you're like, oh, yeah, of course she's genuinely sweet. So it'll be a big surprise. And watching this movie, every time I watch this, I'm always rooting for her not to be evil. It's a great turn when, yeah. she, when, when it flips and it's like, oh, shit, and she plays crazy really well. Yeah, she, she sells did. it. She oh, did. my God. She's a scream queen for sure. And she, she, definitely proves that she's one of the best that there ever was at that. But I was uh, talking earlier about the comedy. I want to say, like, yeah, some of the stuff, the CG jokes they do really fall flat. Right, like, like ghosts getting cut up by, like, a propeller. It looks terrible. Stuff, yeah, Even at the time, it didn't look that great. It's kind of <laughs> goofy. Chi McBride, who plays, like, the sort of, like, you know, uh, shaft ghost, is terrific. But the other guy is just kind of a nebbishy, like, okay, yeah. you're just you're just here for someone for Gene McBride. It's weird how much of it falls flat. Or whatever. Yeah. And I wonder, because like, so much of that sense of humor like in Dead Alive or something hits really hard. And I, I really wonder if it's simply because of a practical, real thing you can see compared to the CGI thing being the punchline of these jokes that makes these things, like, because it looks so, like, clunky and weird, the joke is, like, if you had something practical and, like, squishy... <laughs> Like, it might, like, take you over that edge and find it amusing, like, in a juvenile way. But because it's CGI, it's just like, oh, okay. And it's another yeah. thing where there apparently are no real rules. Because it's like, okay, these guys can get spat out through the exhaust of a car and reform. But if the, the, if the, the Jake Busey shoots or, or Arlie Ermy in a, a annoyingly on-the-nose uh, <laughs> uh Version of the character he's played in like eight films, uh, <laughs> Ghost in his of only Guns, character. his only yeah. character. Uh, I'll actually uh, like push back on that a little bit because I think Arlie Ermy is the one character I wanted to see more of. I really, oh. really wanted to see him destroy this ghost. <laughs> like, I just, that's actually one of the biggest jokes. In the, I remember when I was younger loving that because he seemed like the ultimate badass army dude. <laughs> and the moment like he shows up and Jake Busey shows up, he's just whoops, like, out well, immediately. Like, yeah. He's, yeah. he's, cheap, but he's he, the guardian of the cemetery where he's like, I don't like you, Michael J. Fox. Get out of here! Uh, and originally, it was gonna, there was going to be an angel character uh, that, they, that they filmed sequences of and everything, which have yet to see the light of day. Uh, but they were like, ultimately, we don't really. He doesn't fit into the rest of the mythology of this film at all. Having an angel, so let's just get rid of that and make Arlie Ermy that guy. And it's a shame because the sequence where Michael J. Fox grabs his ghost guns and 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 takes out like temporarily the villain is cool. But how much cooler would it have been for Arlie Army to actually been more than a cliche yeah, and been right. the one to achieve yeah. that in that sequence? Yeah. That would have won me over for sure if he yeah. was if he backed Michael J. Fox up while he was still going on his quest and trying to finish. And, it. and I will say after these like last four or five negative things I said about this movie, I love this movie. Yeah. Like, it has a big nostalgic and like even past nostalgia. There's a lot to love in it. Like. It's very charming. It's very funny. It moves really well. Yeah. I mean, Peter Jackson is a really good director. He's a victim of the CGI times. Um, other than that, they're like, if if this movie was made like beat for beat today with updated effects, it would be like just as like, it would be incredible. You know, it'd be it's just, just a good. touch trim down to get a little less of the CG jokes in there. Yeah. And then you've got like a tight 
story. Like, I, it really works. Well I would movies. argue a, one of those few movies I would argue I would love to see Peter Jackson take another swipe at this as oh, a okay. remake with maybe somebody like uh, Joel McHale playing the oh, uh, psychic Jesus investigator. Christ. You just made me come right now. I think he's too buff. No, I mean, no. like, Joel McHale is... He is I, actually so. pretty buff. He's so rich. Yeah. Yeah. You remember when we, when we I'm watched... I'm getting all of her over here. You remember when we watched and didn't review Deliver Us from Evil? Uh, yes. and that scene where Joel McHale takes his shirt off and I you're like, like, fuck, dude, you ripped. <laughs> you're ripped. <laughs> but he hides it well. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, Oh give, him a, give him a big puffy sweater or something. Yeah, exactly. I just started sweating right now. <laughs> Flames on the side of my face. Maybe we should move on. But we, I, I agree with Alan 100%. Like, Frighteners is... I, I love it. It's got so much nostalgia. I think it holds up well. This is probably one of the rare films I would say, yeah, if they brought around a remake... I probably wouldn't be super mad about it. In the it. very right hands. Like yeah, Peter Jackson, exactly. either director or heavily be exactly. executive producer. I can see it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's this is kind of lightning in a bottle that's not perfect, but yet it kind of is at the same time. There's like there's stuff I would change, but it is what it is. And at the end of this movie, every time after I'm finished watching it, I've just got a huge smile on my face. And one of the things that I think this delivers that almost no horror comedies were capable of doing is that it's fucking scary at points. Oh, yeah. Like, and almost no horror comedies are genuinely scary at points. And this has that whole thing with the cloaked figure, like the, 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 the Grim Reaper. Reaper of Death, is really scary. And it's even scarier when it's revealed that it's like a, a Jake Busey. And Jake whole, Busey's face whole, is scarier than death. His, his whole <laughs> idea of like, like this serial killer who wants to beat the record of all the previous serial killers is a really frightening idea for a ghost story. Yeah, you know? it's one that's kind of, I feel like, become even more relevant. Right? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. this is, like, at the time, it seemed like this was just, like, well, there's no way anyone would be like that. But now you're kind of like, this is actually hitting some serious notes. Like, yeah. Right on that. I mean, ever since 9-11, he's like, fuck, there's no way. <laughs> I can't win. I can't win. That's already, that, that record's been beat. All right, so let's go on to our next one, which is... Devil's Backbone. The Devil's Backbone. And one of you two guys want to talk about the plot for this movie? Sure. I actually uh, just watched this for the first time, and I'm absolutely in love with it. Oh, nice. It's a lovely, lovely movie. Um, so, the synopsis is going to be a bit of a challenge. All right, so we've got... Spanish Civil War is the background of the whole thing, and a young boy has died, seems to be after a falling bomb in the midst of this war, but the bomb didn't explode and it didn't kill him, and... Set in an orphanage. Set in an orphanage, thank you. Um, so we've got a new boy to the orphanage that is trying to fit in, trying to learn the ropes, and in the midst of that we've got a bully, and we've got... Civil War, and we've got emotional intrigue and all sorts of stuff going on, and ultimately we find that there's a ghost in this orphanage, and the ghost is the boy who died that we saw in the beginning of the movie. The bully witnessed his death, and that's why he has sort of become a bully, and they have to band together to save themselves from a man trying to steal gold from the orphanage. Basically. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's kind of a Save themselves from a metaphor for fascism. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's perfect explanation. He is precisely a metaphor for fascism. Yeah. Which is a note that I think uh, Del Toro did a little bit in um, 
Pan's Labyrinth as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he regularly considered these films to be like deeply related in the sense that he said, this is the brother film, that, uh, Pan's Labyrinth is the sister film. That totally makes sense to me. They seem like part and parcel. They're both set during the Spanish Civil War. They're both about children dealing with the supernatural as a metaphor for the Spanish Civil War and fascism. And that's that's the one thing I found about this movie. It almost seems like, and I mean this complimentary, almost like the prototype to like the next level masterpiece that Spans Labyrinth, in my opinion. Like this is like an incredible movie, but it also, you feel like, um, I don't know if you, I read some things about like those ideas where there was like, um, these beings that were covered head to toe in red. There were multiple ghosts that were supposed to be in the original script of this. Like it was a much larger, well, he was imaginative. World. He was writing this fifteen. He was writing this thing fifteen years before it ever got, got into production. Mm-hmm. Long before he'd actually ever directed anything. This was one of his first scripts that he wrote that changed a lot over time. Yeah, and you can see like it was a much. I think originally a much larger oh, world. Guillermo de Toro. Yeah, is that, the that pared down, and then like once this happened, and then he got a little more traction. I think a lot of that, you know, his imagination is the thing of like a legend yeah. um, once he got the chance like Pan's Labyrinth feels like the natural continuation feels very much like this world and this like um, emotional core that this movie has just re- way larger but without the fantastic I mean this takes a, I mean you don't think Pan's Labyrinth had the fantastic no no I'm saying oh this yeah the, this. no Devil's like, Backbone doesn't Devil's Backbone the has fantastic. the most limited yeah. element very like ghost exactly where I think he originally had a lot of bigger ideas and like he took that and blew it up in Pan's Labyrinth I feel interesting. Like, go ahead uh, so kind of related to what you're saying, they're, they're brother and sister stories in the sense that the ghost is not an escape. The ghost, in this case, is the hero, right? The fantasy world in Pan's Labyrinth is an escape that she goes to to get away from fascist yes. Spain, yeah. you know, right? And But the ghost here winds up saving them from it. That's a good hmm. point. And it's so one's actually that. effective and the other one is what you'd want to do. And with those two together there, I feel like it presents a whole picture of his feelings about the situation. And this that, is what we were talking about sense. earlier about ghost movies that are more about the tragic ghost story that has a like something that he needs help with humans to accomplish, which is a, certainly like in terms of the written literary ghost story is probably more of a traditional ghost story sense. Um like I, it's funny how rarely the ghost is actually in this movie. It's more about the relationship between all these characters and and the drama building from that, which is very involving, uh, to say the least, and just gorgeously shot. But ultimately, the ghost is a big part of the denouement of the film as it all comes together. Patience look at me like, did you really use the word denouement? Yes, <laughs> and pronounce it correctly. Yes, you did. No, she's still looking at me like that. I wish this was videotaped sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so do I. Um, it's just like that. My only issue is that, and and like people were very complimentary on the way the ghost kid looked, and I think. This is one of those examples where it didn't age well, the look of the ghost no, cat. I completely disagree on that. Because watching The Frighteners, which I love, and then watching this for the first time, I feel like this is the most artistic use of limited special effects that I've seen in any of, in any of our list. That floating blood The conceit is great of how he's designed, but the actual final finished project, product is looks kind of shy. And this is only a difference of five years. Yeah. But, yeah, but there were leaps and bounds in CGI. Yeah, the which is, I mean, between '96 and 2001. Plus, yeah. this is a Spanish-made film, not a Hollywood project. That's so true, yeah. you know, take it as as you will. It's still a gorgeous-looking movie, no question about it. I think the biggest problem I had with this film is that I 
I really had a hard time identifying or empathizing with any of the characters. They're all fucking assholes. No, the kids. Well, like Carlos. Well, yeah, Carlos okay, I mean, the kid is fine. That's fine. And, oh, and but, Al, yeah. And, and the but, old man who who runs the place. The old man who is drinking fetus rum? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Fair enough. That's a mark against him, but only that. <laughs> right. Other than that, in every other way, he is... Two words, rum- Chris. Fetus yeah, rum. Yeah, but you don't, don't attack him for his culture. Yeah, I was going to say... And to be fair, he only drank the fetus rum because he's in love with the old lady and he can't get it up. That <laughs> True. was acknowledged. True. That was- Seriously. <laughs> he's he's like, kind of like thinking, like, I'd look at the old lady, the, the, one, the one-legged lady who is still... Pretty hot. They're uh, all he's like, I'm gonna cunts in this film. Every really? single one. But like the guy, the, the the younger girl there is genuinely sweet. Never oh, yeah. does anything She's contentious. Like I mean, the only Who's one of the dating a cunt. The only one yeah. of the kids who's really an asshole is the one uh, uh, bully kid. And even Who then, we end around. up understanding I mean, like, why he's it's, an asshole. It's, it's such a great. Uh, by the end of the movie, when they all come together, the bully and like the main hero, all the kids come together to defeat like the real prick of the movie. Yeah. And it's such like it's one of those like. Where everything, like all the movies set up, you know it's leading to this point, and it's still so satisfying it's, when they finally uh-huh. get there. It's, 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 it's so, so shockingly grotesque when it happens too, because you think any movie with kids is never going to have kids like just brutally assaulting per- someone in a gory way, but it's they're like cl- yeah. shoving wooden spears right into his flesh. It's classic Del Toro. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Well, if we're thinking of it as a metaphor for fascism, like yeah. it's like a bunch of kids with sticks that are slowly but steadily trying to kill it. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's true. Good point. And I actually feel like this is more of a political film with horrific elements than it is a oh, horror film time, with a political yeah, totally backdrop. It's a political not fable. Unlike, uh, not unlike Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, and they're both, like I said, deeply related. They're political fables that use the supernatural as an allegory yeah. for what he wants to say. Although he's always said the supernatural part of it is actually the part I love the best. So, <laughs> And I think that comes across as why it works because I've seen other films that try to do that. Doesn't work anywhere near as well. Well, you can tell his his love for the genre is really in it. Like, where that happens with another filmmaker, it's like, oh, let's use this as a tool. Where he's like, no, like, the tool is, like, the love. I love this. And, like, I could use this thing I love to tell her stories. That's a good point. The kids refer to the ghost kid as as, uh, the the one that sighs. Uh And apparently that came from an experience where after his uncle died, he had, like, several nights where he kept – his uncle had a very distinctive sigh. And his, he swore up and down that his uncle was in his room every night and that he kept hearing his uncle sigh and it terrified him. But even as a kid, he decided, I'm not going to let this like destroy me. I'm going to take this and hold on to it and I'm going to use it later for something. And it ended up becoming the big, the backbone, as it were, <laughs> for this, the spina bifida, if you will. Of this. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Good one. Deep cut. <laughs> uh, great performances throughout this thing. Uh, the, the the bad guy who I love that. All right, so there was the thing I saw recently where I forget it was a BFI has claimed they're no longer going to cast villains that have scar facial scarring because they wouldn't want to upset anybody with scars. Which I was like, come on, it's right? Discriminatory. But I always prefer it when a bad villain is incredibly good looking when they're like, whoa, that's not because they're so good looking it's striking and then they end up being like completely self-absorbed because guess what? Um, (laughs) And this guy who is, yeah, he's like shockingly good looking. You're like, god damn, that dude's not a model? (laughs) And uh, yeah, he's just villainous as fuck and you completely buy into it and I, 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 I think he's great here. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, he is a villain you just relish despising in this movie. I mean, basically, every attractive person I know in regular life is a villain. So Very much. This, 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 I, I rate, I'm a good person. <laughs> I rate, with the exception of patience, how villainous you are based on how good-looking you are. It's a direct correlation. <laughs> and, Scientifically and proven. And me, of course. And, oh, yeah, no. Real I mean, you're yeah. like the Lex Luthor of villains. <laughs> Which is to hair. say, very successful at it. I, mean, I don't know why you're not a billionaire right now. Uh, yes, don't worry, it's coming. Me too. There, I, what do you guys think in terms of this being scary, though? Mm. Absolutely. Well, I would go absolutely not. Um, I mean, there were like early on some scenes that were creepy, but like, being a Del Toro, and I kind of understand like his love for the supernatural is almost like. Any movie he makes, like, the supernatural is not going to be necessarily scary. It's just part of the world. So coming into it, it's actually the first time I've seen this movie. Wow, uh, this, both like, yeah. of you guys. Yeah, yeah and it's that something that, like, forever. exactly. It's been, I've had the Criterion DVD for a very long time. Which, by the way, has the spine number, and this was intentional, 666. <laughs> that was the 666th Criterion release. That's awesome. I did not notice that, and I have that in my house. But, yeah, it's something that I've had, like, owned for maybe two years and just haven't watched because I knew I was, like, going to watch it at some point. And it was a great opportunity. and But I knew going in, it was going to be, like, a very gentle look at a ghost. It's going to be some sort of, like, we're in the world of a ghost existing. It's not like a ghost is tormenting someone. So I knew that going in, it's still, like, he has that, like, great touch where there are really creepy things happening. There are some great scenes where they're uh, going to get the water um, after uh, the ghost knocks it off, essentially. And they're going to get water. And that scene is just so tense and creepy. Even though I know... The ghost isn't being malicious. I it still like gets to you, um, but not necessarily like terrifying. It was never like I wasn't like I'm going to leave this one light on in the hall when I go to yeah. sleep after this one. You know, it was pretty chill. For the I, most part. I think that this was like the the first question that received like the the ghost reaching out to the protagonist as opposed to being evil. Um, this is a case where the ghost is is just kind of wanting to be acknowledged and it's the humans that are the real villains here. Those are the ones that you need to be afraid of, not the ghost. Yeah, I completely agree. I think, and like Del Toro's best stuff, it is the very real, very immediate yeah. human bad guys that are scary and not the supernatural stuff. Either it's exactly. an escape to it or it's a help or something. You know, like those are, generally speaking, the nice points of the thing, even yeah. if they seem scary on the surface. Yeah, even in Hellboy, it's the same thing. Like, the the sort of paranormal creatures... Yeah, absolutely. Are, yeah. yeah are, he's, Del Toro is definitely more affectionate towards monsters than he is towards humans. And he even has addressed this, saying, like, when I was a little kid, I was terrified of everything. I believe my room was filled with monsters every night. And there was a point that rationally I was like, well, they haven't actually done anything to me. <laughs> Maybe I should just have a conversation with them. And so basically he just made an agreement with the monsters. It's like, why don't we, why aren't we friends? <laughs> and like, like was like, yeah, like, so now the monsters were my friends and I wasn't scared of them anymore. And so if you look almost every Del Toro every movie, single movie yeah. I'm thinking, with the possible like, exception of Mimic. Oh, Mimic <laughs> but those I are bugs. That's different. Mimic. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know why he doesn't like bugs. Can, we, can we do a bug episode? No, probably. Can our listeners vote right now and just give us I don't know some ideas on a, on a bug episode? I don't know what's next. We'll talk about that at the end of the, ne- the the second half, which we're about to come to the end of this first half of this. But let me just say, uh, first off, this is the only Del Toro film 
that doesn't have at least one of Ron Perlman or Doug Jones in it. Yeah. It's the only film he That's ever made true. that didn't have one of them in it. Oh yeah, because Kronos has um, Perlman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Even even Pacific Rim, but Perlman, yeah. like like I mean, everyone you think of, you're like, oh wait, that did happen. Wait, what about Pan's Labyrinth? Uh, no, uh, Doug Jones Doug plays Jones the, the the eye creature. Yeah. 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 Yes. Okay. And yeah. I I loved Kronos, man. Oh, so that good. was one of my favorite. That was his first film. Uh, quote unquote vampire films. Yeah, it's yeah. awesome. A very movie. different take on the idea of vampire films, which yeah. we discussed on our vampire on our episode. vampire episode. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think Devil's Backbone is kind of essential watching, for, even if you're not really a horror movie person. But, but if you are as well, this is a a really intelligent, deeply involving, uh, like sort of stand by me crossed with like a tragic war story, like. Ghost movie. It's it's its own thing. There's nothing else that really you can compare it directly to. I totally. Agree. I think it's it's a balancing act that shouldn't have been able to work, but it worked very successfully for me. There's it, a whole bunch of different tones and feels that all mesh together, and it feels like a, a great whole. Yep. Agreed. All right. Well, that is the end of the first half of our ghost discussion. We'll be back next week with a part two, where we will be talking about. The others, Ghost Ship, Paranormal Activity, Tris, <laughs> Conjuring, and Ghost Stories. Right, and we'll have another uh, answer to a question from Fan uh, as well that I don't know if we'll answer to his satisfaction, but we'll do our best. <laughs> We're but until then, what do we say, patients? Uh, keep screaming. We do bitches. say that. Can we- I do the bitches? Part? You can throw in bitches. Keep screaming, bitches. <laughs>